And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a bi-weekly discussion program of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF, in Peterborough, 92.7, on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. We've changed our format for the winter term. Instead of broadcasting weekly, we'll be on your radio uh, every second Tuesday at 9. Our first show was on January 8th. It was on the downtown arts community and its response to gentrification in Peterborough. Tonight we're going to be looking at Peterborough's housing crisis, and our next show will be on the 5th when our political panel returns. Then our next show after that will be on February 19th and so on every two weeks. Now, at this point, uh, I usually say something about we're streamed live on the Trent Radio website, and we have a podcast that's posted at pintsandpolitics.ptvopodcasters.ca tomorrow. But this is an unusual situation tonight in that we have uh, the announcement on the 17th uh, from the Ontario government that, of course, there's going to be cut to tuition, that changes to OSAP, and there's going to be a change to the levy fee system. In other words, levy fees will be on an opt-out basis. Now, we don't know what this means for student organizations such as, well, Trent Radio. Uh, now, Trent Radio is in a unique position in that we are also a community broadcast, uh, a community organization, as well as a student organization. There are students volunteering here tonight, but as my eye travels around the studio, oh, we ha- we're five of us here, and there are no Trent students. So the community is involved. So hopefully that community involvement will help the, the station go on despite the changes in financing. Anyway, uh, joining me tonight, uh, Lisa Smith is on her way. We have uh, with us also uh, Executive Director of Carol's Place and Lived Experience uh, with Homelessness, uh, Dan Hennessy. Welcome, Dan. Then we have property developer and uh, apartment owner, Paul Bennett. We have Executive Director of Yes Emergency Shelter, Megan LaPlante. And we have a construction industry administrator and a property manager, Jen Lancio. Welcome all. And thank thank you so much for trekking out on another frigid uh, Peterborough evening. All right. Now, when it comes to the housing crisis, when I read the words Peterborough's housing crisis, the first images that come to my mind are, of course, the the people we see downtown, the panhandlers and families and social assistants who are struggling to find accommodations. And then, of course, the word affordable housing pops up or the phrase, uh, of course, we're going to talk about those things and rent geared to income, practical alternatives to the shelter system, and so on. But I want to acknowledge that Peterborough's housing crisis has many faces. While the lack of affordable housing is the most visible manifestation, uh, there is a lack of appropriate housing across the entire socioeconomic spectrum. And I know, uh, Jenny, when we talked uh, during the election campaign, uh, you made that point very well. For example... Students who were were at one of the uh, post-secondary institutions in Peterborough often can't find accommodation when they graduate, so they're moving back in with their parents. So what's the solution here? Recently retired boomers and seniors in their 70s and 80s who are living in mostly empty houses between uh, 2,500 and 3,500 square feet 
I'm thinking of the typical two-and-a-half-story single-family house in the avenues, East City or the Old West End, cannot find appropriate accommodation that is smaller. In other words, they can't downsize and stay in Peterborough. Their adult children may have moved away. They no longer need 3,000 square feet with uh, two, two, three bathrooms and four bedrooms. I've been told that uh, there are 5 million vacant rooms in the GTA, in part because of this syndrome. So sometimes they have no choice. They don't want to move away from Peterborough, but they're sort of stuck. So what has to happen to encourage developers to build more smaller homes and condos when the big margins are in the big houses? There are other issues I could ramble on about, but does anything in that, when you hear the phrase Peterborough's housing crisis, what goes through your minds? There is. <laughs> Who wants to start? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, go ahead. Yeah, I, where do you start? As you said, where do you start? We've only got, I guess, 50 minutes to even touch on some of those things. Right. I'll touch on the basic one that you started with, and it's simple supply. Um, you were very right that you know people talk, you know, and right, rightfully so, on the affordable housing side of things. Um, but we have an absolute supply issue across every spectrum, every whether you're talking home ownership, condo ownership, apartments, all rent levels of apartments. Um, so you know, one of our biggest issues right now is you know getting supply to the market in all those different areas. Now, you know, we can, we can that, that's where we can start with, but there's, you're, you're right, there's a million different things we can touch on here to, to keep going on from there. Sure, Jen. Just to build on what Paul is saying, I think one of the housing areas that gets forgotten about quite frequently is that demographic, that demographic that you were talking about, that 70 and 80 year old that is still living in their massive home that they have now outgrown. The problem in Peterborough in particular is that they need to be moving someplace where they can have more support by means of perhaps long-term care. Well, the wait times in Peterborough for long-term care are three to five years. So people are staying in those homes for longer than they should be and longer than they really are able to. So what we're, what we're missing in Peterborough is that domino effect of housing. When people kind of get their apartment, they move into a starter home, they move into a family home, their retirement home, and then long-term care, we're coming to a screeching halt at the end of that before the long-term care happens because there's just, there's no place for people to go. So that's a straight supply, that there aren't enough places in long-term care? There just isn't. And I think people forget that long-term care is part of that whole housing pyramid. It is considered housing for people. And we like at least three to five year wait time for people. Yes, and, and as has come up in other conversations, uh, certainly my parents' generation, they worked, they retired about 60, 65. And sadly, then they, they died soon after. Now, uh, well, Females, you can expect to be here until you're 89 or 90. I think those of us, the Y chromosome carriers in the room, I mean, we're good till 84, 85. <laughs> now, which is, and as a, as a 75 year old, I say, well, yeah, more is better in this case. But, and I, Jenny, I think we talked about this when uh, last time we spoke during the summer, all that extra, all those extra years have to be paid for. That's right. And th- among those things to be paid for, of course, is living. So, so what's the fix at that end of the of the spectrum? Like, how do we get more? And keep in mind that some of many people, when they get to their eighties, don't have the funds to go into That's Princess right. Margaret. You know, and I think we need more long term care 
nursing homes, not $5,000 a month <laughs> right. retirement homes, right. but places where people can go, where there are subsidies that are available to them, where there is the nursing care that they require, right. where they can stay and enjoy that next season of their life. Right. Now, is there any possibility of bridging agencies that could, let's say, have uh, have, have workers come in every day to check on these people? In other words, to get them over the hump. Yeah, I mean... To cook meals, to clean... The tenants that we have in our building, all of our tenants are 55 and older, so my business partner and I deal with this on a day-to-day basis. The services just aren't there. Like, if somebody is 85 years old and they're not eating properly and they've had falls in their home and they have, um, you know, systemic health problems, an hour a day of support, it's just not enough because there's still 23 hours of the day that they could be lying on their floor and nobody will find them. And you, it's just not there. You as property manager are are involved in that. We see it all day, every day. In the last month, we have had four tenants that have lived with us for the last five years have to go into long-term care on a crisis basis. So that means that their health got so bad right. that there was no other option but to find them long-term care. And for the family, that was, we will find a bed where we can find a bed. And it might not be convenient for you. And if right. a couple that's been married for 65 years need to go someplace with more support and they can't get a bed in the same residence together, then they're separated. And it's heartbreaking. Oh. But I, I, I think you touched oh. on it with your point there, Bill, in terms of I, your parents in relation to this generation is that uh, we've almost created another season of life in terms of <laughs> you, you, your parents, unfortunately, passed away and you know, as did mine or my mom, at least. And the house turned over. Now there's a situation where you're 55, 60, and whether it's long-term care or simply a downsized apartment, we've got a whole new supply there. We've got a whole new group of people looking to get out of those five and six bedroom homes, whether they're going to an apartment or long-term care. And we just don't have the inventory there mm-hmm. to so satisfy that phase of life, to start that domino effect that is now kind of held up. So it's, it's a very valid point. It's just, there's, it's new. Sure. Dan. Uh, I'd like to touch on another thing that you didn't talk about. You talked about the panhandlers downtown or the street people being homeless. Uh, well, precarious employment has doubled in the last five years. Yes. it's People are one paycheck away. Yep. Like the single mother that works 30 hours a week at Tim Hortons, if she doesn't get 30 hours a week, well, then she's going to be homeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that, that's a huge issue. And, like, a lot of people are just one paycheck away from being homeless. Yes. It's, so they're returning back to the shelter systems. And, unfortunately, if it's a single mother, it's maybe she can go to the youth shelter It's if, if they have space. If, if they don't have space, where do the kids go? Children's aid comes in and, and takes the kids. And then the mother goes to either Cameron House or the warming room. And that creates all kinds of tragedy and systemic problems for the kids growing up because it's like, why'd mom give us up? It's like she's got to fight to get them back. It's like children's aid's going to say, well, like, why did, why are they in our care? And so that creates more problems. So what are some of the possible solutions? Well, I, I know builders work on building larger houses. It's, but why can't we build tiny homes or like what happened after the second world war wartime houses it's two and a half bedroom homes small homes demographics have changed people aren't having four and five and six kids anymore they're having two and three maybe it's because they can't afford financially they can't afford big families like people here grew up with it's so we need to 
shift our focus to smaller homes, tiny homes, and like tiny homes are less than 400 square feet, but smaller homes like that were built down on the south end after the end of the Second World War. And I know there's not huge profit margins, but... Yeah. Now, uh, of course, there are people in the studio who know know infinitely more about uh, uh, building development, uh, housing development, uh, than certainly me. What is the barrier on a business level? Why why can't developers make reasonable profit building exactly what Dan was talking about, smaller homes? Like, what what has to change? Go ahead. <laughs> um, the, the the first one that you're going to get into right there is land value, which is which is going to be the biggest problem right. for that same tiny home. Now, your your point is very valid, and it would be a great thing to see. I, I think in order for that to happen, you need to see a municipality change some zoning regulations where you could actually divvy up plot, plots of land. Um, this isn't something that I do, but obviously, if you're buying a piece of land and you have to pay X for that land, if you can build a bigger house and get a bigger profit, it's the incentive is to be, build a bigger house. Now. Unfortunately, that is money-driven, and it's unfortunately the way that our society works. But I do believe there would be some ideas on a municipal level that you could do on it from a zoning perspective that would incentivize plots of land to allow for uh, smaller homes or tiny homes or co-op homes type type of properties where there's you're making much better use of each square foot than we do in those larger homes that you're talking about. And I think there are uh, Vancouver's an area that's very, you know, they're decades ahead of where we are, more so because they have to be decades ahead of where we are. But we're obviously, you know, heading down that path. Um, there's some great examples there of where they've done that, and we hopefully can learn from that and do some of the similar things. Uh, Jen, the other issue um, when we're talking about building homes is whether you're building a 5,000 square foot home for a lot of profit or a smaller home that you're going to be able to sell at a more palatable, palatable price, as a builder, when you go to the lumber yard, you're paying X for your raw materials. You don't get a high-end price for your lumber and a rent-geared-to-income price for your lumber. Like, your raw materials are your raw materials. Right. And at, I think the last I heard, it was about $250 of finished square foot on average for a property. If you're building apartments or a house that's a thousand square foot, as the builder, you're in $250,000 and you haven't really done, it's nothing fancy, like it's nothing palatial. It, that's a tremendous amount of money for people. And we're talking about trying to get people in at a lower price point for mortgages and homes. Like your raw material price is your raw material price. Right. Megan. I think just getting back to um, Paul's point as well, the bylaws in this community present a number of barriers and particularly barriers to some of Dan's earlier ideas regarding tiny homes. In particular, there's quite a few bylaws that don't allow nonprofits in this community to be truly innovative. And um, I think that that's something that can change. The Yes Shelter is currently working on um, a build. And one of the major barriers we're up against are some of the bylaws related to smaller units. Young people wish to live together so that their social inclusion needs are met and to be in small trauma-informed architecture style bachelor apartments and the city has um, quite a few bylaws about the sizes that need to be in place which makes it very financially um, lacks financial feasibility for nonprofits who don't intend to make large profit margins because the youth can't afford to pay it and so that I think presents a, just a huge barrier to innovation in the community as well to some of these complex circumstances. Oh, yeah, Dan, go ahead. 
Um, Peterborough has made some strides. They've allowed secondary suites. Uh, you, ha- you have to be connected through the main house's sewer and hydro. Uh, Hamilton has relaxed their bylaws and they're la- allowing laneway houses, which are tiny houses. Uh, there's a community around Ottawa that's allowing tiny houses. Communities all across Canada and down in the States, they're jumping on the tiny house movement. And these aren't the chic tiny houses you see on TV but these are just basic little houses where people can start. Uh, Detroit's got a really good model, uh, Cass Community Center, uh, Loaves and Fishes down in Texas. I know the climate's not the same, but we have to get serious about looking at it, and municipal governments have to start get serious about looking at it. Now, I've also heard that, well, not not, not heard in the abstract sense, it's actually happened to uh, to us uh, on Boswell Avenue. Um, we've been told that uh, to put in, let's say, an apartment in the attic, we have to provide additional parking spaces. Now, is there any... Now, And I get that for residential neighborhoods, but for somewhere like downtown, could there be something... Could something be done with the parking regulations? Like, for example, Megan... All those youth moving, they are not going to be drivers. They won't need to park. So. We've had a, a transitional housing program running for 12 years, and, and we did an inventory the other day. In the 12 years that we've been running that program, there's been one young person ever who has had a car, and uh, the car <laughs> got parked in our driveway and never started again. So it is certainly um, not something that, that we would need to deal with. And, and again, the bylaws are um, relatively rigid on that, uh, which presents a barrier, too. Jen. I think what's happened when the bylaws were created is because it's easy to administer, they've kind of made these blanket bylaw statements, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in the city going back and reviewing them on a case-by-case basis. And clearly, we've reached a point right. where that needs to start happening. You can't kind of make these blanket statements that apply to to everybody. If your tenants don't have cars, why do you need three parking spots? It's a waste of space. Now, there's a uh, there's a large development planned for the old neighborhood we used to call it French Town, just below the art gallery, Crescent Street, looking at. And I, I've seen a f- uh, artist mock-ups of that. It looks like a, a very good, you know, fine, fine addition to downtown, within walking distance of downtown and so on. Would all those tenants, and I forget the numbers on it, the number of um, occupants, but would all those people need individual parking spaces? I'm guessing you're looking at me in that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to single yeah, you out, Paul. The, uh, that one's not as glaring because I would, that one will have underground parking, so it's not as like. Oh, so they will. Have yeah, parking. so so it is not physically as glaring as you would think. The one I'm working on another one in East City, and if you were to look at the site plan for it, it's an absolute field of parking. It's you know one and a half parking spots per unit, as you know some people know. Yeah. So unfortunately, yeah. you know, if we a, a decade from now we'll look back and go, what what a waste of space because there's only so much prime space near our core that we need to add density to, but that's just the way that it is. I do feel like I, I get the sense that there is a changing guard of that and how things may be approached. Certain cities in London is the example that people always use that they, they got rid of their parking bylaws in their central area, um, and then as a private developer or social developer or whatever you are, you then make your decision of how much parking you need, um, which makes total sense because if you are focusing on a bike-centric market, if you're sure. focusing on you know high, you know know electric car, whatever, you can focus in your market and you have to resell that product so it's your own personal decision i don't know if we'll get to that level that's Mm -hmm. that's a very um 
open way of looking at it. I, I, I like it because then I would still like to provide vehicles or cars or parking spots for my tenants, but I don't need to provide one and a half necessarily. Right. I mean, we could probably do a separate one-hour program on parking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, I, well, I remember Rob Steinman, a local... Uh, uh, activists involved with the uh, Peterborough Green Space Coalition. He did a presentation to City Hall uh, at City Council a few years ago where he took out his phone and went to the major public parking lots at fixed hours for a few days and took photos. And uh, I live near one of them, the, the parking lot uh, at uh, Charlotte and Park, right behind uh, Main Ingredient and uh, the grocery store. And uh, it's mostly empty. <laughs> Most of the day. <laughs> and he did this for the parking lot uh, across from the funeral home on uh, Reed, is it? And then uh, a few other parking lots downtown. So where is this paranoia about we need, I remember the last administrator said, we need another 750 parking spaces downtown. <laughs> where does that come from? <laughs> is it just the flawed formula? About parking? I I think it's just an archaic mindset. That's the way we've done it. That's the way we've always done it. And it's easier to keep doing it that way than to look at it. Like my market that I rent to, I need one and a half parking spots for my tenants. Right. Paul's market or Megan's clients or Dan's clients, like they don't need a parking spot. Like they're be fortunate to have a bicycle, much less a car that they're worrying about parking. Right. Well, and I think on some of the ideas you brought up there, there's a locational issue too, right? Obviously, with the parking garages, I think people complain because they, you know, the, the location of those particular garages are quite often full, where the ones that you're talking about may not be in the most high demand areas. So I, I agree. There's, I think the parking may just need to be restructured. Like there's certain areas, the Water Street area, anything east of George really isn't serviced with parking. Um, so I, I think there's some strategic parking that could be placed to help the whole downtown. But some of the lots, as you said, don't don't really have a ton of business benefit because there isn't a ton around them that people frequent. You know, so it just depends where you're looking. Right. Just to let everyone know you're listening to Pints and Politics, a biweekly discussion program on all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, 92.7 FM in Peterborough. Uh, what I'd like to do now is take a quick listen to... An interview did on the weekend with Herb Weissman. Herb is a uh, retired social worker. has also uh, investigated economics extensively and multiple property owner, renovated his own home. So let's give a listen to Herb, what he has to say about this. About is our current housing situation in Peterborough. Given that we do live in a free market capitalist economy, what changes would have to happen to make housing more affordable for more people? Well, we don't. I'm going to take issue with you right away. We don't live in a free market capitalist economy. We live in what is a so-called free market capitalist economy, but it isn't. It's a monopolist economy, and it's not free market at all. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that if you take the long range of view of history, we have moved from a society where uh, there was a real economy and the focus was, focus was on the real economy to an economy that's run in favor of the fire sector. And the fire sector makes all the decisions. Now, and fire stands for? Finance. You could use the I for investment. Some people use right. the word I for investment. And so what we've done is we've changed the uh, purpose of housing from making it a comfortable place where people can create a home for their families into an investment. And when that happens and you have the fire sector involved, 
it's to their advantage to see the investment grow because when you call to the free and when you call to the um, a free market capitalist society, what you're really talking about is a society that's based on growth. Growth means that everything has to go up in price over time. They call that growing in value, but it really isn't. A, the housing housing is no longer a, a place where somebody creates a home for a family. Housing is now an investment. When you look at the papers, that language, which is really important to think about, the language of the marketeers, uh, and that comes straight from uh, an article by Ursula Franklin, that language of the marketeers means that housing is now an investment. It is no longer a place of an accommod- of a accommodation for people. It's no longer just a home. It has to be something more than that. And as soon as you do that, as I said before, you're starting to increase uh, cost of that particular investment because you make more money in the finance sector. Costs are going up because everything is based on a percentage. A $100,000 house and a 10% return is a lot different than a $50,000 house and a 10% return. So how could we change the game? What would have to happen in order to uh, make housing more affordable? We have to lose the myth that we are in a free market economy and that it's a capitalist economy. And we have to start reorienting our priorities. We have three values that we kind of run our society by. The first one is that money trumps. We have to make life as a more important consideration than money and realize that money serves life process if we do it properly. Think about it from the point of view of in ancient times or the farmer sows a seed, sells the crop, takes the money, buys more seed. That's where money and life are intertwined in a healthy way. But when you cut down the forest or you pull out the oil from the ground or when you do other things like that, the money is no longer part of a life cycle. It is now being used. Okay, I'm just pausing, uh, Herb, for a minute. uh, So far, any reactions to what uh, Herb is saying? I always find it interesting when there's this expectation that is kind of placed on the private developer, the builder, or the investor, or whatever, yeah. um, that there is this sort of sense of obligation that they are doing things at cost or for nonprofit. And that's all great in theory. But the reason that a developer is able to do those things is because at some point they did a project for profit and they've made some money and now they have the profit available to put back into a project. One feeds feeds the next. Dan? I, I don't take anything with issue uh, with Herb had to say. But we need to get back to governments need to get back to social housing, municipal, provincial and federal. We'll all levels of government have to work together. Uh, maybe there's room for private developers in that marketplace, but social housing is the responsibility of the government. Right. Uh, yeah. Paul, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, just to Herb's point there, it kind of goes back to what uh, Jenny was saying earlier. It, costs are costs. So uh, unfortunately, we can say that houses are investments, and I guess they are. People treat their mortgage pay down like an investment. But prices of homes go up because the building of a new home costs X. So that same home that is on the market that's 3,000 square feet costs Y. So we can say that house should cost 100000 but it you know, the, the raw materials are, are X to build that size. So it's... You know, he's, he's accurate in saying that our people treat their houses as an investment correct, but that same house that's being rebuilt, the value of the existing house is driven by the costs of the new house. It's not, it's just what it is. Yes, and uh, as we know, location 
which is sort of out of anyone's control, is huge. Oh, Paul is going to go to sleep at this point because he heard the story uh, last time he was in the studio. But old university friends of mine uh, who lived in the... Uh, uh, the Annex neighborhood, uh, close to U of T in Toronto, bought a house in 1971. We all moved in. They had some help from their parents, of course. They bought it for the princely sum of $40,000, which was big bucks in 71. Well, they sold it last month. They're moving out west to be closer to their uh, grandchildren, their kids. Uh, and they sold it for $2.5 million. <laughs> No, they didn't. No, they kept the house in reasonable shape. It's not a dump. It's a you know three thousand five hundred square foot house. But who was going to be able to buy that house? Well, the house was snapped up like that, and so the irony is that all of us U of T grads who moved in there, uh, I remember my rent was sixty two dollars and fifty cents a month. <laughs> Astronomical. I mean, none of us could afford to do that today. What does that mean? Jen? You know, it, I said, well, first of all, for your friends, good for them. They sat on their investment for 45 years and, and, and good for them. I think it's important to recognize Peterborough is not unique in its housing problem or Toronto. My daughter goes to school in Kingston. You paid $62.50 a month. She's paying $670 a month for one bedroom right. in a house with 10 bedrooms. So wow. good on the landlord, right? <laughs> like, like good on him. That's a tremendous amount of, of money, though, for people to be paying. Exactly. So whether you're in Peterborough or Kingston or Toronto or out west or wherever you are, it's not a pro- housing is not a problem that's unique to to Peterborough. Good point. Megan. However, I do think that the the piece that we're missing is that the groups that end up um, feeling the burden of the housing crisis are often the most marginal. So, I mean, certainly a privilege that your daughter can be can be away at school and, and be paying that. I'm sure that's not easy, but certainly um, the majority of that burden is falling on people who don't have parents and didn't have the ability to attend those circumstances. And I think representing the voice of homeless young people, they don't have that opportunity whatsoever. And I also think it's important important to note that just housing supply is not um, is not enough. There are a number of other factors that need to be in place for people to be successful in this community. Okay, Dan, go ahead. Uh, I'll just talk about that a couple numbers. Uh, three years ago, Peterborough was Canada's eighth, eighth hottest housing market. Three different rooming houses were sold. All the tenants got evicted. They said they were going to turn the rooming houses back into single-family homes. People got evicted. Some people found housing. Some ended up in shelters. There's still rooming houses to this day, but the rent went up from $500 a month to $700 a month. If you're on Ontario Works, like you can't afford yeah. that. It's So you're moving into the Brock Mission, which costs $625 a month. And like the average one, average bachelor apartment in Peterborough, I think, is $693. Uh, one bedroom apartment is $850. It's like something has to change. It's like governments have to step in, put in rent controls again, uh, and start protecting people. <sighs> okay, thank you. Uh, let's catch uh, catch up with Herb and see what he says next. Hold on. Just for the sake of making more money itself, the, the, the resources. The second value that's really important is um, profits in our society trump people. Our role is to serve the profit-making of the so-called free market economy. We need to turn that around. P. 
people have to become more important than profits. The workers should have more say in how a corporation is being run. General Motors shuts down because uh, the corporation wants to make even more money by going to Mexico. So what would have to happen in Peterborough in order for housing to become more affordable? What would, is there anything the credit union can do, get, get it away from the banks? Let me just, I'm not going to answer that right away. I okay. want to go to the third value is that corporations trump democracy, interests of the community. goes now into your question about what we can do in Peterborough. We have large developers who are running the show. If you try to go to borrow money, suppose you have uh, some money and you want to buy a piece of property here in, if you want to buy a piece of property here in Peterborough, you have to have a larger amount for the down payment for the property than you do for the actual house that might be on it. So it's not an easy process to get the money you need to build a house here in Peterborough. If somebody has a, a large, there's some very large properties over in East City. Some of those could be infilled very nicely and occasionally they are being done. And I believe one of your other panelists, uh, Paul, is very interested. Those properties could be infilled in really good ways for people where you could increase the density, which is what would be desirable, because then you have this need for sprawling roads, sprawling sewers, sprawling sidewalks, all that urban sprawl that is going on even here in Peterborough. There are better ways to do it so that you don't have those expenses attached to your housing. So you start looking at what are the factors that go into expense of a house and what do the developers do? Well, you've just had a tour of my place. Mm -hmm. When I was doing the design for this and doing the build for it, the builder had arranged for the contractors who were doing the the services on the place to give him an upcharge as well as to add 30% to any of the quotes that they make. And I found this out by talking to one of the contractors. So my place cost $200 a square foot to build. Let me change that. Charged me $200 per square foot. Mm -hmm. But when I started looking at what the actual quality of the workmanship was and what they were doing, my guess is they weren't even, it wasn't even $100 a square foot. Because the developers, your corporations, the big guys, such a stranglehold on the people coming in to do the work that they could upcharge like crazy in an actual value of what the house has cost to build versus what I paid. There's a huge difference. And so one of the problems is the way that developers manage a construction project, which drives the price of the house up because of course it was up higher. They make more money in the so-called, my house is a beautiful example of that. You've, you've had the tour. I doubt if it should have cost more than a hundred dollars a square foot, but right. it cost me over $200. So there's a, an immediate cost factor that causes problems, and the developers have a stranglehold in the city on how houses get built. Okay, so what's the fix? Well, the fix would be, I think that people have to recognize it, start that with, to start with. And then what are you going to do with that from a legislative point of view? What can a, a municipality do? What can a province do if it wants to? It, it's really a question of political will. We need to sit down and look at those kinds of behaviors on the part of developers and what can we do to change those behaviors either regulate or incentive incentivize them in a different way all right uh reactions to that uh her finished with the point as uh, developers as sort of wicked evil species uh, what do we make of this 
Uh, for, that's why I prefer community builder. I, the, 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 word, the, word, the word developer really does get, get some bad uh, connotations. No, I, I get that. No. Going back to his first point, I couldn't agree more with the idea of uh, intensification. He, he touched on a great point there. And he's small cities in Peterborough or small cities in Ontario like Peterborough or Kingston or where we only have few areas in where, which we can intensify. And it's a, I think we're actually getting a changing mindset in municipal governments where they want to see that intensification. And that means smaller units, more units. Um, walkable to the downtown so you know he used east city as an example like i said that was we even talked about it earlier where there's a a large parking lot there that doesn't need to be there there could be more units there um but that's just the way that the the lay of the land is right now so i i agree with that point for sure the other one i don't know i guess maybe someone else could talk to that which point i think paul's right when you say the word you know developer it kind of comes with these this bad connotation and every like unfortunately i think herb maybe picked a shady contractor and that's why he got some bad pricing but that's not the way it, it has to be you know like you know i think that there are some really good community builders like paul that i'm sure is more than willing to work with organizations like megan's and like dan's and work together like everybody has the different a different skill set but it's getting everybody together and working towards a common goal is what needs to happen. Certainly my skill set is not as a, as a builder or a developer, but I do think to, to Paul's point about intensifying some of the spaces, not only is it, um, is it perhaps best economically and also for adding units, but certainly best for um, marginalized populations and certain groups as well to decrease social isolation and create communities that are healthier and, um, and less independent in single family homes. I just wanted to ask like Dan and Megan, when we're talking about um, creating intensification in housing, how do you find working with landlords? <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, I think that it's it's a challenge, right? I, I get it to a degree. Landlords are in the in the business that they're in often to make money. They're they're not nonprofits for for whatever reason. And I think that young people and the families that we serve at the Yes Shelter have a really hard time with landlords, and there's a great deal of stigma and discrimination that's put on them. Um, I also think that just putting young people into landlords' homes and assuming it's going to go well is a mistake on the community as a whole. About 40 to about 42% of young people aged 20 to 29 across Canada still live with their parents. So not only are these 16-year-olds thrown out when they don't have the skills, but they also don't have the privilege of free rent until they're 29 if they need it. And so I think outside of the landlord piece, the supports that go with housing are really critical. And I think um, most landlords are, are much happier to take a Trent student with a co-signer than a young person experiencing home. Homelessness, and so I, I think that it's something that needs to be addressed differently. I agree with Megan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now um, we live, uh, as uh, Herb said uh, on the clip we just heard, we live in a capitalist democracy. I mean, he straightened me out on that. Where buying and selling <laughs> of property and houses is a legitimate way of doing business and building wealth. And uh, uh, my friends in the annex uh, are not feeling. I mean, they're stunned with the amount of gain they had of selling their home, but, uh, you know, that's what houses are going for in the Annex in Toronto. Given all that, where should we be looking for practical solutions? Are there other jurisdictions 
that have solved these problems of access and affordability. Uh, what can we learn from the cooperative movement? Can socialized housing and free market speculation coexist? Uh, it seems that we need intensification on many fronts, attractive condos and apartments for the retirees, plus affordable housing. Uh, what changes in the banking system would have to take place? What role could real community banks, unlike our current credit unions, play in this transition? Uh, what, what roles could, should the province and the federal government be willing to play? And in the current political climate, what roles can we reali realistically expect them to play? Thank you for jumping in. That was two questions in one. We need to work more on transitional housing. We need to get away from the antiquated shelter systems. A few years ago, Dorothy Oliver said the average stay at the Brock Mission was between 45 and 90 days. Now it's measured in years. It's They're serving the same clientele. It's we need more supports for people because shelter systems don't work. They're really expensive to run, and they have a high recidivism rate. It's we, we need to figure out why people are not able to be housed, maybe offer them intensive supports, uh, may, maybe have staff on in an apartment building 12 hours a day helping them. Maybe they went through a divorce, and the man doesn't know how to do laundry because his wife always did laundry. Uh, he can't function on his own. Maybe he had been incarcerated for a long time, and he... he did, never learn the skills. It's so we have to teach them the skills. It's because a lot of the shelters now, it's they're just a cesspool. It's like mental illness runs rampant. It's people don't get enough sleep. They're woken up at eight o'clock in the morning and the dormitory's locked. We just have to rethink the whole shelter system. It's like the Brock Mission is going through a rebuild right now. It's been chronically full for over three years. It's forty beds. When and if it does get built, it's going to go up to 45 beds. It's... Sure, you used the phrase transitional housing. What is transitional housing? Could you paint a picture briefly? To transition somebody out of homelessness, maybe teach them the skills they need, the coping skills they need, maybe teach them cooking, how to cook for themselves, how to do their own laundry, just simple skills that everybody takes for granted. Maybe that person had been incarcerated for 20 or 25 years, for whatever reason, and like they've never used a bank machine, they don't know how to cash a check, they don't know how to function in daily life. It's uh, maybe they need help building a resume. So they'd have to get some volunteer work to build a resume. It's like, why have you been out of the workforce so long? It's like we have to transition people to do for themselves. Okay. Nika. Just to paint a bit of a picture around transitional housing. So Yes has been running a transitional housing program for 12 years, right in the neighborhood of Trent Radio, actually. And interestingly enough, the Trent students pay a levy towards that program every single year to support homeless young people. And so it looks like seven young people who are living communally in that home with the supports of our Yes shelter staff to help them move forward on their goals. And we're providing all of the things that parents would generally provide, like laundry, cooking, cleaning, helping them with college applications that type of thing. It's um, a highly effective model for young people. And we see we never see the young people who graduate from transitional housing back in the emergency shelter. They are often headed to Fleming and then often to Trent. I just want to take a quick second and um, 
disagree with Dan's comment about all shelters being a cesspool. Um, certainly the Yes Shelter for Youth and Families um, offers a very clean facility and I do think that if we could get away from looking at shelters as the solution and if we equate them to something similar to the emergency department at a hospital, they're not the perfect solution. You don't go to an emergency department to have someone um, help you with your long-term heart attack recovery. They stabilize you during a crisis and that's similar to what shelters are doing and I think it's important that service providers, and this is something that YES has started to do, transition their funding and services to ensure that there's preventative measures to homelessness, similar to family doctors helping to prevent heart attacks, as well as things like transitional housing to support the rehabilitation after someone's experiencing a housing crisis, very similar to the the role that family doctors or different rehabilitative centers would play in the healthcare system. I think a continuum in homelessness needs to be developed in the same way that a continuum for housing has to exist. Okay. Now, I have here uh, the latest copy of Peterborough This Week, their real estate section, and some genuine uh, Trent Radio sound effects here. Uh, this is real. This is real. This is. We are looking at the paper. And I've opened it up to uh, one of the real estate companies, and I'm looking at uh, homes in Peterborough for sale. And uh, open houses, I'm seeing uh, something on East Hill Drive for 435000 <laughs> something on Grange Way for 528000 something, another on Grange Way. Uh, this is free advertising. This is free advertising. Uh, 29 Nurse Avenue, oh, that's up in Innismore for $1,285,000, okay. Um, let's find some more. Uh, okay, Avery Avenue for 569000 Church Street for... Well, two twenty nine. Oh, that's a store. Okay. Uh, what I'm driving at is these numbers seem even. I've only been in Peterborough since two thousand. Uh, they're astronomical. Who are the buyers? Like who? Who, uh, who can afford these homes? Probably your friends that are coming from Toronto with two point <laughs> five million dollars in their wallet. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. You know, buy a cottage and a boat. Exactly. <laughs> is is the issue that we need to adjust what our concept of starter home pricing is? I don't know. Twenty five years ago, my husband and I bought our first home on the street that I live on. Now we paid eighty thousand dollars for it. I am now back living on that street. I did not pay eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> three years ago for the house that I'm in. So is it just that what needs to be adjusted as well as clearly there's some price correction that needs to be done as far as real estate goes, but is that just what the fair market value is now? Well, I don't know. That's what, what I'm that, asking. Jen, what does that phrase mean, price correction needs to be done? I think, you know, last year the real estate market kind of kind of was on this big high and things were selling for crazy amounts of money and everybody kind of got into this buying frenzy. And so people, you know, we had tenants that were putting their house on the market and selling them in three hours with nine multiple offers and $70,000 over asking price. This is Peterborough? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Now that's been corrected. There's only so many buyers with that kind of money. So price corrections are happening with real estate. But I think, you know, finding the all-inclusive apartment for $600, I don't know. Does that exist anymore? Is that a thing? If, if your point is true, though, that um, that 
maybe starter homes need to be readjusted for what they cost, then certainly jobs haven't kept up. There's a lot of people graduating with university degrees, entering into jobs that would be considered good jobs like nurses, those kinds of things who, who certainly can't afford the down payments that are required at this point. Yeah, and, and I think the, all, all those points are correct in the sense that <clears throat> we have to, as a probably as a country, not just a city, wrap our head around home ownership in general. We've uh, had a you know record high of home ownership percentage. There's nothing wrong with renting either. Um, hmm. It's one of those things I think is still looked at. And I grew up, and you, your first thing you're supposed to do is try and buy your house. And back when I bought my first house, mine was one hundred ten thousand dollars, and I could get one hundred ten percent financing for it because they had cash back mortgages because they wanted you to renovate your house. Now you need 20% on down on a house. And it's, if I was to come out of school right now, I don't know how old I would be before I'd be able to afford my first house. <laughs> Probably 35. By, by, the time, able, by the time you're able to save $50,000, $60,000, your down payment for that house, it's a long time. So it's a, it's a whole shift. Now, I, we're, we're, I think we kind of got off on the whole home ownership side of stuff. I, I wanted to kind of get back to what, what both Bangan and Dan were talking about too in terms of the, you know, you had asked that kind of list of, you know, questions about how do we move forward and a lot of these issues. Obviously, the home ownership stuff is huge, but you know, personally, I, I do think the um, the issues on the the affordability side on the um, you know, more affordable spectrum of rents is the most important part. Um, and I, to Dan's point earlier, uh, it's it's not a Peterborough problem, it's not a Canada problem, it's a worldwide problem, and it's not a municipal problem, it's not a provincial problem, it's all of our problems. And the only solution is for all all sectors, all you know, governments to work together to find solutions. Megan and I both just came from a you know a social funding um, uh, conference. Actually, Bill was there as well. I saw it in the back, and uh, it, it was brilliant. It was it was you know leaving leaving your money in your community and helping use um, investment funds to build things like affordable housing, where right now getting any kind of financing for affordable housing is very difficult. So I think there's a lot of really creative and innovative solutions that are just starting to come. It's unfortunate they didn't come sooner. Um, but I do think it's it's all of our problems. And I think that's the most important part of the segment that we need to, to, to aim at right now, because there is uh, some really serious issues going on right now. But once again, all supply is good. So are there things... and, and Thank you for that answer, Paul, because I, I'm understanding it's like Peterborough wanting to do something about the Arctic weather we've been having. Well, <laughs> the Arctic weather we've been having is affecting all of North America. It's due to multi-causes related to the jet stream moving south, etc. So there's nothing Peterborough can do about the Arctic weather. Mm -hmm. Ditto the housing market. I get that. It's multifactorial. But... Given that, are there things, small things, we were talking about parking regulations, that we uh, in Peterborough can do to make some of these things, for example, cooperative housing, are there changes to regulations, changes in how uh, developers can earn money uh, that would push the ball in the right direction? I think um, reviewing some of the bylaws would be helpful, certainly ensuring that nonprofits can be innovative. But I also think complacency is not going to help anyone. So assuming that it's a federal or global problem and not doing anything, I don't think will be helpful. One of the ways people in Peterborough can get involved, I think, is reaching out to some of the nonprofits who are providing work to the most marginal and seeing how you can help out. Um, and, and starting there, I think, would be the way to start. Also looking at affordable housing, not all of it's created equal, and true affordability is at times times not what's being built and touted as affordable housing. So ensuring that you're paying attention to that and making investments or supporting the right causes are quite important. And on that note, uh, thank you so much, Dan, Paul, Megan, and Jen for uh, your time and your insight. 
really helpful to, uh, to create some understanding around this. To sign off, we will be back in two weeks. Uh, this has been our second program of the 2019 uh, winter season, and please join us every second Tuesday at 9 on Trent Radio 92.7 uh, FM. And if you miss us on the radio, you can always download the show the next day at uh, pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcaster.ca. Until Tuesday in two weeks, that would be the fifth, when our politics panel returns. This is Bill Templeman. Catch you later.